Are you Invictus? Clint, are you Invictus? Are you Invictus? What does it mean? You know, when I started the Invictus My podcast, uh, you know, my goal was to unite a bunch of people who had a similar ideology or uh, similar characteristic traits. Invictus means unconquerable. So it's an, an old uh, Greek word for it means unconquerable. Unconquerable. So, it, honestly, just be totally honest, it was, a, it was a new concept to me. I had to Google it when you sent it to me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do my best. Tell me about what the show, what, what, is, what is your audience looking for? Tell me. This is your first time here. This is the number one program dedicated to helping individuals maximize their potential and truly become unconquerable. Here we have discussions about what it takes and what it means to experience and magnify political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. Yes, I would absolutely say that. I'm going to keep getting up, right? And I keep getting up and I keep pushing forward. And that's the type of mindset that you need to have. I, I never lose hope. I never lose faith. My mindset has always been, if I want something, I don't give up. So let me tell you what is the number one issue when it, when it comes to being unconquerable. Okay. And the number one word you have to think about here is not intelligence, not savvy, not strength, none of those things. The number one thing is resilience. You know I'm Invictus, come on. All right, I'm Invictus AF. Well, may I have an initiation question for my tribe? Okay. Are you Invictus? I believe I am. So yes, I agree. I am Invictus. I totally agree, man. And and I think that if there's anybody on this planet that's unconquerable, it's probably me. I am not the type to take orders, and I am definitely in a position that uh, I can I can stand up for myself right now. So. And I was like, no way! I know what that word means now. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. Very cool concept for a show. You didn't ask me if I was Invictus. Well, hello, everyone, to another episode of the Invictus Mind Podcast, the show where every discussion pertains to how to acquire, maintain, and magnify your political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. This, of course, is your host, Mike Corbell, and I'm happy to be here. Today, we're talking to a gentleman who says he has led an incredible life and is always happy to share it with people. I, of course, reach out to him via podmatch.com, which, of course, is a great resource for fellow podcasters and guests who have a message to share and uh, wanted to connect with each other. I am an affiliate with podmatch.com. So uh, I'll put the show notes at the bottom of the podcast here. And if you are interested in, in joining up, then it's a great resource. All right. So uh, here's what I'm going to tell about the, today's guest. He, uh, he definitely has an interesting story to tell, and I'm going to let him share most of that with us. But uh, what I found very interesting is that he spent his career in the British Army, starting as an infantry soldier and later became a PSYOPs operator with seven operational deployments. He also is an experienced rugby player, a competitive skier, a hang gliding instructor, and an offshore sailor who has made numerous circles around the British Isles. On top of that, he is a podcaster himself, the host of the Tim Heal Show, where he gets to talk to ordinary people who have extraordinary stories. His name is Tim Heal. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing great. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on your show. So I think uh, you just told him what I've done. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully you can fill in whatever I missed. Well, I can elaborate a little bit. As <laughs> well, great. You, you, I see that you have a strong British accent. And, and before we started recording, you told me that you are uh, talking from uh, your home in, uh, in England right now. Yep. 
So we uh, we get people all across the world on this podcast, and uh, and that's why it makes this uh, this whatever you want to call podcasting a hobby, a career, something fun to do. Is it's very it's always a very interesting thing. Well, for me, it's uh, it's kind of a hobby that's kind of taken over a little bit, um, particularly since um, since we got into lockdown, and and that's well, that's just blossomed now to what I do. So, uh, I say pod match has been pretty awesome for me. Um, to be honest, it has, has opened up the world, and I've talked to so so many interesting people. It just makes my life look a little bit boring at times. <laughs> well, I agree with you. You know, and I think a lot of people had to make that necessary adaptation when lockdown occurred. And uh, on this show, I talk to people who have been able to overcome such obstacles, whether it's of their own doing or outside influences, as we see what happened with the lockdown. But uh, somebody like myself who has gotten into podcasting uh, has made, is it a full-time uh, operation for you now? Well, pretty much. <laughs> it's kind of taken over slightly. <laughs> but you started your career in, uh, in the British Army. I did. Um, at the tender age of sixteen, I joined the British Army. Okay. Um, and prior to that, I was a, a I was an army cadet, and just before that, I was a sea cadet. So at the age of uh, about ten, ten and a half, I became a sea cadet, and I did that for for about eighteen months before, because I was just a little bit too young to join the army cadets. Um, so. I wanted to go into the army, so the army cadets was was the way forward. So I did a bit of time as a, a little sailor, and then uh, I mean, then moved on to the army cadets. And at the age of sixteen, I actually joined the, the British Army as a junior soldier um, at the depot, the Queen's Division, hmm. um, a place called Bassingbourne Barracks in Royston in Hertfordshire. Okay, uh, and I, I started off in the, the Royal Anglian Regiment. And that's where I finished up my career in the Royal Anglia Regiment some 44 years later. Let's see. Let's see. Now, so I have never served in the U.S. military. My brother has. But is it a voluntary army in England then, or is it, uh, is it a mandatory service? No, no. We, uh, we gave up national service back in 19, I think it was about 1962, thereabouts, Okay, uh, when people had to... Uh, do their two years but um no for me it was uh purely volunteer it's a volunteer army which probably makes us the best army in the world um we don't always um get it right but when we do we're pretty good at it okay okay and what was it about the, the armed forces that uh, that compelled you to join did you have family members who were also in the service or it was just a, um, a love for your country what was it I didn't want to go to jail. Okay. <laughs> You're going to have to expand on that one. <laughs> it, got, kind of, it could have gone two ways for me. I could have I, I could have ended up in prison um, or, or joined the army. I, I was um, hanging around with pretty rough types at the time. Although I was a, an army cadet and had that kind of discipline, it, it kind of gave me the right steer to mug these geezers off, um, most of which ended up in, in jail. Um, and, and I ended up in the British Army and uh, never looked back. So I left uh, left my hometown of Hatfield in Hertfordshire 
at the tender age of 16 and never really went back. Okay. Yeah, I suspect that that that, uh, that path is probably uh, for a lot of uh, misguided youth, if you would, you know, if, where if they're hanging around with the wrong people, you know, they, they have limited options. And so you might as well get some discipline and, uh, and hopefully if you're interested, make a career out of it. Yeah, I, I certainly did that. I, I've had some... I've had some pretty fun times at it and taken one or two liberties along the way, mm. shall we say. <laughs> okay. Okay. So now, uh, obviously, I want to respect, uh, you know, your, your your age and everything like that, but you mentioned that you were serving in 40, for 44 years. Yeah. What, what were some of the major conflicts that uh, you were involved with? You, you said you were on seven operational deployments. What, what was that? Well, I started out, um, my first operational deployment was in 1977 in uh, Northern Ireland. I was in a place called um, the Bally Kelly in, or the Bally Murphy, not Kelly, that was later, the Bally Murphy in West Belfast, uh, which was a pretty rough time back at the, in 77. Um, a Company area, I was in A Company of two Royal Anglian, we had a pretty tough tour. We had some form of major type of incident every day for for six months. It was it was pretty tough going. I mean, we had bomb attacks, we had shootings, we had riots. Wow. Um, so many riots you wouldn't believe. <laughs> One day I stopped a half a house brick with my head. Oh my gosh, that hurt. Um, <laughs> But yeah, we, we had rocket attacks and yeah, it, it was a tough tour. We we lost a, a couple of guys which which didn't help. Um and then I, I went back to Northern Ireland after the, we, we spent two years in Berlin uh from nineteen seventy-eight to nineteen eighty. Uh and then from nineteen eighty one to eighty two, we were in um Londonderry in Northern Ireland. And that was a, again a pretty rough tour because we were there during the Falklands War. And uh, it, it was, although the Falklands War was pretty tasty, and that was 40 years ago, it was it was pretty grim in Northern Ireland at the same time. Sure, and then sure. uh, in later years, I did um, two tours of Kosovo. I did Macedonia, which was a, only a 90-day op. And during my tour in Macedonia, 9-11 happened. Five months later, I found myself in Kabul. Mm. And uh, that was the first of my three tours of Afghanistan. And I absolutely loved it. Okay. Afghanistan is an awesome country. Um, and in 2002, I had a really, really good time in, in Kabul. Um, I had a little bit of freedom to be able to get out and do pretty much what I needed to do just with, with myself and an interpreter. Um, we were able to go out on the streets of Kabul. Um, I was able to interview people. Um, we came up with a concept of a, a tri-language newspaper um, called the ISAF News. Uh, it changed its name a little bit later, but it, it carried on in the same format that we'd put together uh, at that time. So it was a a kind of broadsheet newspaper with good news in it. So we had a, a news news articles on the front page. We had a features article, 
uh, page, and then we had um, a sports page as well. So we we covered sort of some local sport and international sport. Um, so it's just like a, a normal tabloid type sort of newspaper, but it was in three languages. Mm. I had uh, I had a chance to to in, in, interview Hamid Karzai, who became the president. Um, I also at that time interviewed Ashraf Ghani, who was the minister of finance, who later became who took over from uh, Hamid Karzai as the president. Um, I interviewed the, the minister for the Hajj, and Hajj is the the Pilmigridge Pilmigridge. Got it. Uh, Pilmigridge. I can't even say the word. Pilgrimage. <laughs> I do. Uh, to Mecca. Okay. Um, okay. So that was that was quite a, an interesting chat I had with him, um, because they 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 were trying to get lots of people to go off to to Mecca um, that particular year, uh, because it just kind of opened up for them to do it and we were facilitating the route uh from um from uh, kabul to uh Riyadh so they could go to mecca hmm. um and then i went to uh iraq in 2004 which was a uh, i didn't really like iraq much i had a really tough um, tough job to do there. My role, uh, I was a psychological operator at the time, and the task that I was given was to come up with a campaign to enhance the perception of the Iraqi police service to the local population. Okay. The fact that the Iraqi police service for decades under, um, um, what's his face? In a minute, Saddam Hussein. Oh, no, Saddam Hussein. <laughs> That's a child when you're getting old, you see your brain starts to fail on you. Hey, um, you experience all that stuff. I just know from the tabloids and from the newspapers the names of these characters. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so good old Saddam Hussein, uh, his police service wasn't the best, uh, they were corrupt and all the rest of it. And, and to try and come up with some sort of campaign. Uh, for the locals to trust them a little bit was uh, pretty much a hide into nowhere. Um, during that tour, I was about four months in. Um, I, I managed to, to get up to Kabul, uh, not Kabul, up to, to Baghdad. Um, I travelled all around um, southern Iraq. Um, we were based out of the, the airport in Basra. Used to go into Basra City occasionally. We used to go up to a Samwell where the um, the Dutch were. We were in Nazaria with the Italians, over in uh, Alamara where the Brits were. Um, so I managed to get around quite a bit. Um, we used to go down to um, Kuwait once a fortnight to get some stuff printed up and stuff like that. So I managed to get around quite a bit, but about four months in of a six-month tour, um, I got a message one day um, to go and see the Padre. For <laughs> that's that's weird. I don't don't normally talk to a god bother, and um, he called me in and he sat me down. and said, um, "We've got a problem. You have to go home." Well, um, yes, your wife has been diagnosed with 
with cancer and she starts her treatment on Monday. This is Friday afternoon. Wow. He said, go pack your kit up, you're on your way home. Well, that was the worst 24 hours of my life. I bet it was. Um, you know, it's just the, the, what was going through my mind, I mean, just packed all my kit up and I was, I was flown out civvy. Um, and that was it. I got home, had a hell of a weekend. Uh, and on the Monday, we went to the the wooden spoon unit in in Stoke Mandeville Hospital in Aylesbury, and uh, she started her treatment. Hmm. And then uh, at the end of the treatment, they said, "Well, if you stay clear for for two years, you'd be fine." Anyway. A year and 11 months later, it came back. The cancer came back and um, she died within about six weeks. And that was in 2006. No, that, was the, that was 2006. That was the end of your military experience then? No, no, that was, that was the end of my wife. Okay, well, uh, yeah, I'm sorry to hear I that. Did, I, did, I, I mean, I carried on serving. Um, okay. But I didn't deploy out again while she was ill. But I, I, I carried on working at the base. Um, I, I was, I was then on the, on a training team that were training up um, guys for pre-deployment training to go to, to at that time Iraq. And then, um, in two thousand five, we started going back into Afghanistan. So I was training up guys to to go to Afghanistan, and uh, obviously she died. Um, a couple of months later, I went out to uh, Afghanistan again, to, down into Helmand Province. Okay. So, uh, yeah, didn't have an awful lot of time to get over or, or to grieve, really, um, and, and just get on with a job. Gotcha. So I spent I spent six months in uh, in Helmand Province and had a had a pretty good time. I I. I I really enjoyed that tour because it was it was a bit of a shooting war. Um, this is before they started sticking in all, all the IEDs and stuff like that. So occasionally I was able to get out on a patrol. Um, my role was uh, predominantly radio. Um, and I, I came up with producing radio programs to, to send out to... Um, for the locals to listen to. And so I'd go out and I'd interview uh, village elders and stuff like that. And uh, we came up with a, a, a programme, a series, a serial type programme called the Afghan Archers. Hmm. Well, here in England, we have a, there's, there's, it's the longest running radio serial programme that's, that's in history, which is called the Archers. And that's been going for, I don't know, 70 years, something like that. Really? Okay. Yep. Um, so we came up with a similar sort of ideas, talking about locals and and if there's, there was an incident went off in the market, then we'd, we'd try and incorporate that into the into the programme. Um, yeah. So I was recording and editing in Pashto predominantly. <laughs> I don't speak the language. Gotcha. Um, uh, so it was it was full of challenges, but I mean I had a great time. Um, we're out on one particular patrol. We got dropped off by helicopter. Um, my patrol kit uh, for for going out on a foot patrol. Um, I managed to weigh weigh everything that I carried 
going through um, Bastion before we went out on this operation. And I all up weight, I was carrying 42 kilos of kit. Oh. That's a lot. That's um, 42 kilos. That's about 90 pounds of kit, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Most of it was ammunition and water, to be honest. There was, <laughs> there, there was, there was very little else. Um, there, there was a, a, a day ration pack um, mm. and ammunition and water. And we were out in this particular village. The, the helicopter dropped us off. Cleared off, and it was due to come back about um, about eight hours later. Unfortunately, the comms had gone down, and we couldn't get anything once the helicopter had gone. Um, we was only sort of 20, 20 minutes, half an hour into the patrol, and we got opened up on by the Taliban. Huh. Um, nine hours later, we managed to break off the contact, having finally got some comms. Um, uh, and they came in and dropped a couple of 500 pound bomb bombs on what was left of the Taliban that was attacking us. Wow. Um, fortunately we didn't lose anybody at all on that day. How we have got no idea. Somebody was looking after us, but they certainly weren't looking after the Taliban. Right. Right. I gotcha. So, you know, I remember back in 2001, 9-11 here in the United States, you know, yeah. shortly after that, there was a lot of sentiment about uh, foreign invasions and, you know, foreign uh, military uh, excursions. And uh, especially when the United States decided to go to Iraq, that's when there was a, an even greater divide. What, what mm. were the sentiments like in England around the same time? Because America, obviously, if you were a Republican, you thought one way. If you were a Democrat, you thought a different way. Obviously, you still do in these days, but uh, it was much more divided, particularly on a war issue, whereas like today in 2022, that's not even an issue anymore. Well, what was the sentiment like in England? Uh, pretty much the same, I guess. I mean, Tony Blair um, was accused of all sorts of things at the time, and a lot of stuff that they were coming out with him and Bush didn't quite add up to, to what the reality was. I mean, we went to war in Iraq under false pretenses, a lot of people thought. And with a bit of hindsight, they did he didn't really have weapons of mass destruction. Um, there was a lot of talk at the time that um, uh, that Bush knew that they had weapons of mass destruction because the Americans had sold it to them in the first place. <laughs> but they couldn't find them. Um, and I think that's that's the problem there. But there was a there was an awful lot of ill feeling at the time for, from a from a soldier military point of view, we just do as what we're told. Uh, right, right. Uh, for me I I wouldn't want to go back to Iraq. It's not, it wasn't one of my favorite places. Um, I did really enjoy the role that I was doing, although I did get out and about uh, to see a, a lot of the country. Um, yeah, it's it's not one of the nicest places. It's nowhere that I would like to go back to. It's not somewhere I want to go on holiday to. Afghanistan okay. is. Now, see that that's that's interesting to me because I, I've heard a lot of people say that you know obviously they nobody wants to be inside a, a, an engaged fight or in war, and a lot of military people are are skeptical about some of the powers that be. But you know, like you said, they have to do a job. That's what they're that's what they're commissioned to do. 
But uh, the fact that you you liked your time in Afghanistan, you know, because of the job you had, rather than when you were in Iraq, the, the job that you had, you didn't yeah. care for. Was it more than just the military job? Was it the, the people were different? Was it just was it the weather? I mean, I don't really know much about that part of the world, obviously. But well, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Iraq. The time I was there, we got there. It was it was in the high twenties. Okay. Uh, and when I got pulled out, it was in uh, sort of the, the high 40s. Ah, okay. um, so the, the temperature, it was pretty flat and barren. I didn't find the people particularly nice. Um, they weren't overly friendly. I went to a few places that had a really odd feeling about them. There's a place called um, Al-Kabir where... In the year before where we went in, there was six Royal Military Police that were killed in this particular village. And that particular village had a very, very funny feel to the place. I mean, you you go into it and sort of hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you, you feel like you're not safe in this place. Everybody's out to sort of... Have a, have a chance of uh, having a go at you if they can. Um, gotcha. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't one of those places you'd want to go back to. Hmm. Um, but there you go. It's, it's, it's what it is. It's, it's part of the job and that's what I did. Um, right. Right. I was, I was, I was quite pleased when I, I came out. I didn't even have a chance to do a handover. Um, I just had to drop everything. Pack my sure. kit. I was I was flown out within days, so yeah, it was a pretty pretty miserable experience. The okay. whole thing. Okay. Well, you mentioned that you were doing in Afghanistan. You liked it because of the profession that you had at the time, and you were doing a lot more uh, journalism and, and broadcasting type of work there. And yeah. uh, you know, obviously, those skills have carried with you to your podcast today, and you know some of the other experiences you have. But you mentioned that earlier that you were you were writing a lot about sports and stuff, activities, and you're somewhat of a, an, an athlete yourself, correct? Used to be. <laughs> you you were a professional rugby player, right? So was that just your game well, of choice? That, that professional bit's a bit of a thin line. Um, <laughs> I, I guess the, the professional bit came from I was being paid because I was in the army. I was playing okay. <laughs> playing, playing uh, <laughs> on a Wednesday afternoon generally or uh, is when the army tend to have their sports. Um, so I used to play a lot of rugby on a, a Wednesday afternoon uh, and I used to play for, for a local team as well. Um, and I used to play for our veterans team. And so, yeah. So use that term professional fairly loosely on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair enough. But, you know, so here in the United States, rugby is not as popular as it is in other parts of the world. But, uh, you know, I, I, from my estimation, rugby is a real man's sport. So, you know. <laughs> a man's sport, yeah. A proper man's sport. There you go. So, that's it. But, uh, you know, so again, being the ignorant American that I am at times, just I say jokingly, but, uh, you know, so rugby, what, what was your, what was some of the positions you played in rugby? What, what were your, uh, your position was at scrum? What is, what does scrum mean? Oh, I was, yeah. I, I only ever played at scrum off. Okay. Which is the, uh, the guy that, that gets the ball and puts it into the scrum. So you've got the, 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 the eight guys on each side, um, they come together. So you've got a front row of three, then you've got the, the two locks behind them, and then you've okay. got the flanks. 
and then you've got the number eight. So you've got eight guys going together like that on each team. And uh, I was the guy that puts the ball in. Uh, and then I'm the one that, that chases the ball around and passes it out to to either give it to the forwards or I'll pass it to the backs. So I, uh, I'm the link between the, the number eight and the number 10. Okay. Is that so, just more of an offensive position then? No, no, it's, 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 a, it's, it's an all-round. You don't have offense and defense in in, in rugby. You have you have the ball, you're attacking. If you haven't got the ball, you're defending. Gotcha, so, yeah. Uh, but, but it's not like everybody goes off on the sidelines and, <laughs> and watches the other side of the team play. You're on there for, for, for a good 80 minutes. 80 minutes? That's how long the game yeah. is? Oh, wow. Yeah, 80 minutes, two, two 40 minutes, halves. And uh, the adage is that um, footballers, uh, soccer players run around for 90 minutes pretending that they're not in, that, that, pretending they're injured. Ah. And rugby players run around for 80 minutes pretending they're not. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's why it's a proper man's sport. Very cool. Yeah. Cool. But uh, um, among. Uh, on top of rugby, you were also a, a skier as well. I won't say professional unless that was a case, but you were in some competitions, right? Well, you could say again, I was a professional telemark race skier. Okay. Um, the fact that I was doing it, getting paid to do it by the army, makes me a kind of a professional. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I skied for the, for the army for quite a few years. Um, I was on the first army team that took on the Royal Navy. Uh, and we won. Uh, so we were going up against Royal Navy and the Marines. I got gotcha. uh, An army team, and we were pretty good. Okay. Um, and I, was, I skied for a lot of years. Uh, we, we used to go to a place in Austria called Rowis, where mm. the, the, the British Telemark Championships took place, and that was generally run by the army. And um, we had the honour of being the first British team to run an international FIS championship, world championship race um, at Telemark. So that's the Britain has never run uh, an FIS championship race ever. What is FIS? FIS. FIS? Yeah, it's French. Okay. Federation Institute, something or other, I don't know. My French is fairly limited. But, um... <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. Well, very cool. And then I'm jealous of this one, that you were a sailor and you were able to, to navigate around the British Isles a few times. Well, I've done a little bit more than that as well. Um, I've, I've always, so, I mean, since I was a, a saucepan lid uh, in the, the sea cadets uh, as a seaweed, um, I've always been messing around on boats of one sort or another all my life. Yeah, and, okay. Um, and I used to take guys sailing. So I, I got my sailing experience through the army. Um, so I got all my qualifications through the army. And I used to plan out expeditions. So I used to take guys up to to um, to Germany, a place called Kiel in Germany, which is in the north of Germany. And we used to take out boats and sail around Denmark. Mm-hmm. Um, I take I took um, sixty six people on ten boats on an expedition to Croatia. Um, so we took sixty six guys 
uh, sailing in Croatia, which was great fun. Um, and I also, I had my own boats. I, I, I've had three boats in my life. My last boat, we um, when I retired in 2018, um, the first place we went, we took her up to the Baltic and we sailed around. We, we sailed from, from the UK across to, to Belgium, up the coast, up through the Stanmast route through Holland. Mm. So there's, a, there's an inland route that you go through Holland, through the canals with a sailboat with a mast still up uh, and popped out the top and went through the Kiel Canal um, and we sailed around Denmark and Sweden and into Norway and then back down again. And then um, in 2020, when the lockdown finally lifted on, uh, I think it was about the 9th of July, we set sail. Um, we did uh, from Gosport down to the Sillies, the Isles of Scilly, uh, 130, 132 miles. Uh, in in 30, 32 hours, and wow. we had a couple of weeks in the cities, and uh, a bit late in the season. But we said, well, "Why don't we tick the bucket list and go around the UK?" So we set off, <laughs> sailed up the the Irish uh, the Irish Sea um, to Scotland, minced around the Western Isles for a bit, came through the the Caledonian Canal, and then sailed back down the uh, the east coast back to Gosport. Okay. Okay. Have you ever um, sailed across the Atlantic or anything? No, not done the Atlantic. Um, I've done the English Channel several okay. dozen times. Sure. <laughs> to France and what shorter distance? Yeah, I mean, it's only it's about eighty miles across. Okay. Um, okay. Lots and lots of sailing experience. Yeah, that I mean, you've done some amazing things so far, and obviously, uh, what I'm hearing it connects all of them is that you've done it with the army. Yeah. So if it wasn't for the army, you probably wouldn't have had so, so many experiences. I mean, it's possible, but uh, obviously you're looking back at your life, you're like, okay, well, I can, I can, no wonder why you had such a good time with, uh, with your service. <laughs> well, if, if, if I'd have been a, a civvy, I would, I'd have had to work for a living and, and that's not me. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. early on, I, 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 I I got posted when when we left um, Londonderry in 1982. Okay. I got, I got posted away from the battalion, and I got posted to what was then called the Army Hang Gliding Centre, mm. which later became the Joint Service Hang Gliding Centre um, that was just being set up. And um, I had a job there as a, a, a clerk storeman, and I ended up, um, I arrived there and ain't quite got the idea of what hang gliding was all about. And the guy that was setting it all up, the um, this captain, he said to me, "Did I want to learn to hang glide?" I said, "What's hang gliding?" <laughs> so within within a, a week and a bit, I was on the first course, uh, and I learned to hang glide. And I was out um, most weeks flying, um, and then a year, about, about a year in, I took the the exam to become a an instructor, and then I I finished off there doing. Two years of instructing and going out with teaching people to hang line. That's unbelievable. That's Which was great fun. We we went off on several expeditions as well. Um, so we're taking guys that are qualified. We we put an expedition expedition together. We went to um, to northern Italy. Um, 
so, so um, flying the seven um, Dolomites, and we were, we were based in an American Air Force Base, actually, Aviano. So you may have heard of it, um, American Air Force Base, Aviano, in northern Italy. Yeah. Uh, we used to fly there. Uh, the following year, we went down to Spain, and we were flying some really challenging sites in, in Spain, really challenging takeoffs taken off at four and a half thousand feet above the valley floor. Oh, wow. And, and the takeoff is, 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 is almost vertical. You just step off <laughs> on an updraft and, uh, and you circle around. And when the whole of the valley floor just lifts and it's, it's a spectacular place. <laughs> so four and a half, four and a half thousand feet sled ride down to, to, to a landing field. Uh, and then you come back up and then you, you go off, later in the afternoon when the whole valley lifts and it's really pleasant just flying around. So that was a place called Azure hmm. in, uh, in Spain. Yeah. We also took a, a, took part in competitions and we had several competitions that we took part in and uh, up in Scotland, we, <laughs> we did some, what they call June bashing in, um, in the North of Scotland. And it's, it's just, Dunes are about, um, I don't know, about 30 foot high, and, and you're just scratching along. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> just looking out to sea, <laughs> just beating up and down this ridge. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So where I'm living in, uh, in the United States, uh, we have Lake Michigan. Is uh, you know, I'm, I'm outside of Chicago, and so we have Lake Michigan there. There's sand dunes uh, in Indiana and in, 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 in the state of Michigan. And uh, those are fun. They're about 30, 30 feet in the air, sometimes a little higher, but you can just jump and roll on them. I never did any hang gliding be, uh, you know, by them, but yeah. I see people with dune buggies and stuff like that. It looks like a lot of fun. So. Yeah, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> so you are definitely uh, uh, one who loves extreme sports, which is great. And, you know, uh, with all those experiences, I'm sure you've met quite a lot of interesting people, obviously, with your podcast now called the Tim Heal yeah. Podcast. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the, you know, have you, are you interviewing people you've already met? Or, I mean, that you've done experiences with like friends of yours in the army or what are some of the, the stories that you've heard while you were podcasting? Well, that, that's kind of how it started. Um, when we went into the first lockdown um, back in whenever it was 2020, is it 2020? I can't remember. <laughs> it seems so long ago now. Um I, I got to thinking. I was do, I was doing ancestry, and I found my great granddad, okay. who was a chief stoker in the Royal Navy, who lived over in Portsmouth, mm. and he died in 1930. So I, I didn't have a time machine to go back and have a chat with him, but mm -hmm. um, I thought, well, his story's lost. So if I don't tell mine, that'll be lost too. That's how I got into the podcast malarkey. So I did 24 half an hour episodes of my life. So if any of your listeners out there suffering from insomnia, have a go, have a listen, put you to sleep, possibly. Either that will get you nightmares and keep you up all night. Um, and I got to the end of that, I did a couple of other episodes where I went slightly more in-depth to some of the stuff I've done. And uh, we're still in lockdown. I thought, what do I do next? So I started with other people. And uh, I did my mother first. So I had a chat with my mum. And, and and got her story, and then it kind of moved on from there. And I was 
talking to people that I knew, friends and stuff like that. And uh, and that kind of dried up towards the back end of last year. Um, trying to cajole people and force them into talking to me and telling their stories. And uh, so I went off and uh, at the time I was playing about on Facebook and uh, used to do what we call a thirsty Thursday rant. So I'd sit there and go on about politics and and stuff that was going on and uh, and generally having a right old rant. And then <laughs> I started doing that on the podcast. So yeah, yeah. I, just, I did a Thursday Thursday rant. <laughs> and uh, well, it's and funny because on Facebook we, we we all know we can get in trouble just ranting on social media, right? You never yep. know who you're going to run into doing that, and you know who's going to be offended by doing that. And, and so I, I see what you're a couple of times. <laughs> Well, if you're if you if you haven't gotten banned on Facebook, then you're not doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you know, so you know, as far as podcasting goes, I I agree with you. You know, it's one thing to type words on a social media and to you know to just rant as you say, but when you're actually mm. sitting down and having a conversation, I find it intriguing when when you find somebody, even if you don't share a common interest, you can at least hash out a conversation, and uh, you know, hopefully come to some kind of uh, terms with each other where you're not end up hating each other because you're sitting down face to face you're not just talking to a, an unknown bot as it were yeah and uh you know so um that's why i got into podcasting because you know i love meeting people who are uh just have great stories sometimes i have like-mindedness with them and you know like you and i sir you know the life you've lived and the life i've lived are, are nothing alike but i really appreciate some of the stories you share with me mm. but you know well, we can talk politics if you want. <laughs> I could go on about that all day long. Well, you know, I'm not sure, I, so I, I'm not I sure had, the bots would take it. I, I had a conversation with a gentleman who was in Australia, and uh, you know, the the latest political rant was all about COVID, and uh, mm-hmm. and since then now now it's like okay, well, what do we talk about now? We talk about Russia and Ukraine, or the the, the issue of the day here in America is uh, the Supreme Court, uh, you know, getting rid of Roe v. Yeah. Wade, and so. I don't know how the conversations are overseas in other places, but uh, what he told me is hey, this is all part of Western civilization. So it's all part of the same conversation. So uh, yeah, since you much. brought up politics, what, what's on your mind? <laughs> well, um, Brexit mainly, it still hasn't been done. Okay. Um, okay. I mean, we're, we're still pandering to the European Union. Yeah. Now, don't yeah. get me wrong. I mean, I love Europe. I'm, I've travelled extensively through Europe and always have done and probably always will do. But the European Union is a different barrel of monkeys altogether. Okay. They're just unelected bureaucrats that, that want a United States of Europe, which ain't going to happen, not with us anyway. Um, but we've got the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, that has to go. I mean, that's that's just tying our hands and, and making life miserable for the poor poor buggers in Northern Ireland. Sure. Along sure. with Article 16. And we've proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the EU have broken all the, the, the WASP names that entitle us to pull the pin. And when we do that, what we should also do is, is turn to stuff it and go full WTO rules with them so world trade organization rules the same way as we deal with anybody else in the world 
uh, and and take the consequences and we'll be much better off for it without them dictating to us. Sure. The other thing that they, they, I don't know whether you saw it in, uh, in America, but the other week they stopped a flight of illegal migrants being flown to Rwanda. Mm. Some unnamed bureaucrat in Strasbourg says that we couldn't fly this flight to Rwanda. And that's wrong. Um, the European Convention on Human Rights is working against us. And that's something else we need to get shot of to be able to have a... I mean, we set up the human rights in the first place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And now it's, that's worked against us. So mm. we need to get shot of that so we can then just concentrate on having our own set of human rights. I mean, the UK is renowned for being one of the best places for asylum seekers that are genuine. I gotcha. We're also saps to illegal migrants coming in here illegally. What they do is they, they throw away all their documentation and everything like that. Uh, and so we can't prove who they are. So my thinking is that if they come in on these, these boats without any documentation, coming into their country illegally, we should put them straight on a flight down to Rwanda and process them down there. Instead, what we do is we put them up in hotels. We give them an awful lot of money. Um, it's costing the UK taxpayer £5 million a day to keep illegal migrants in this country. Now, are the migrants, are they mainly, uh, are they mainly refugees from, uh, from Middle Eastern wars or? No, no, they are, they are economic migrants coming from Central Africa, from Africa. African countries, um, some of the Middle East countries, but they're, they're certainly not um, asylum seekers. Asylum seekers, the proper ones, have the documentation and uh, they're going through the, the proper process. The problem is that the genuine asylum seekers uh, are being um, disadvantaged by so many illegals coming in. Yeah. Um, and I, I've, I've seen it firsthand. I've got friends that work for me in Afghanistan that miss the flights because the chaos that ensued in Kabul at the time. Um, and they've, they've lived in fear. They've managed to get out. They've got the right documentation. They've come through the right channels. Uh, and, and they've finally got here within the last few weeks. Um, I mean, albeit they're fairly well traumatised from, from the, the, the experience that they've had in hiding for the last six months or so. Yeah, so, yeah. So, the Taliban are actively seeking interpreters that work for foreign countries uh, and organisations. What they're doing is they're, they're, they're finding these guys and they've got the, all their DNA, um, all their biometrics from where they register to vote and all the rest of it. So once they find these guys, what they do is they take them into a market and make an example of them, whether they uh, beat the crap out of them or whether they hang them in the market. And that's been happening. Sure. I feel sure. sorry for the the, the, the the girls and the females in the country that have, have had 20 years of relative freedom, been able to go to school, get an education, and now it's all stopped. Um, 
and, and they're forced back into the burqa. And nope. you you won't get any of them say that uh, that they don't want to wear the burqa because if they do, they they they're severely punished for it. And this you is know, what's happening. Sure, sure. Well, one th- one thing that I, I I'm picking up from what you're laying down here. Uh, immigration, of course, is a hot debate topic here in the United States, too. Uh, yep. Different countries involved, obviously. But I think it comes back to uh, an issue that you and I agree with. And you mentioned the European Union. And uh, the reason why I think a lot of people, a lot of ordinary people, regular people are uh, opposed to that type of structure, especially in a country like Europe, a continent like Europe, is that there's multi countries there with different cultures, different traditions, different customs, religions, even. And uh, in the United States of America, that's absolutely true, just as just as much as it is in Europe. Uh, we just have 50 states. Right. And so each state yeah. has its own tradition, its own culture. And, and people don't like when when people come in and usurp the rules and the traditions and, and roles and things of that nature. And that's why it's such a hot topic. Uh, the problem is, like you said, there's bureaucrats, in, uh, not only in Europe, but in the United States, and they want to make everything underneath one centralized platform, one legislative body. And, and that'll never yeah. work. I don't think that'll work in, in any place because the cultural issues facing yeah. the world are, are, are very important, very you know, personal. And, uh, you know, you can't you, it's not just about boundaries, but it's, it's about, uh, you know, let's, let's let's try to legislate locally more than uh, from a centralized location. Yeah. I mean, we're not without problems in this country at the moment when we've got um, we Jimmy Cranky up in Scotland, um, Nicola Sturgeon wants an independent Scotland. The plain reality of it is that Scotland cannot afford to be an independent country. It Mm. just doesn't have the resource to be able to do it. We have something called the Barnet Formula, which gives the Scots uh, a massive... I'm not sure of the exact amount of money, but it gives the Scots a lot more money per head than it does in England. The same for Wales and Northern Ireland under the Barnet formula. And the, the, the part of the country that's paying for oil is the South East, which is the affluent part where London is, where more money is made. So the, from our point of view, yeah, from an English point of view, yeah, get rid of Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. And we'll just have an England, sure, sure. <laughs> and we'll be we'll be much much better off. But um, we're a united United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah. and that's what it. I mean, what it should be. Mm-hmm. But you've got these little factions that little littlers that want to rule the world, like and. Uh, and they just haven't butted up against reality yet of the situation. <laughs> they just haven't thought it through. I mean, yeah, Nicola Sturgeon just hasn't thought it through. Gotcha. And Alex Salmon's gotcha. before her. Uh, um, yeah, they're just they're just crooks, really. <laughs> if, if, if you, I mean, <laughs> there's the six hundred thousand pounds that's gone adrift, and they they've had billions. It's like London. I mean, take London uh, with the, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. He's bankrupt. Um, Transport for London keeps keeps asking the government to bail him out. What's he do with it all? He's, 
And the, the problem in London is that there's a mass, massive problem with knife crime. Yeah. And, he, and he's not tackling it. That's his job. Is that it's because they, uh, they outlawed uh, the possession of firearms in England? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah. you're not allowed to have handguns. Handguns, you can okay. have You can have shotguns and, and the like. You can't certainly go up to the shop and buy an AR-15. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. all. You can't, you can't have an automatic weapon as a civilian in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, but knife crime is, is, is rampant in London, particularly. And it, it all tends to be um, the young black kids yeah. that, that are stabbing each other on a daily basis. Yeah. And, and the mayor of London should have that as his main um, main project to stop. But he isn't. He's, he's poking his nose in all of us, international matters, rather than what he should be doing. And, uh, yeah, that's a... That's another thing that wrong, so wrong about um, Sadiq Khan is is yeah he's he just is useless at what he's supposed to be doing. I can share the same sentiment about any politician here in the United States. One thing I'm curious about, though, because uh, you know obviously the United States uh, is notorious for going all over the world and trying to solve international problems. I, I wonder about uh, the news outlets in the United States, because we have the BBC here in America. And, you know, I guess to a certain extent, we're aware of some of the news that happens, uh, you know, in the British Isles. Uh, is there a lot of new, bro- is there a lot of news broadcasts from the American perspective uh, that you can see in your, in your country? Um. Generally, we only get the negative stuff when you've got um, okay. kids run rampant in school, brassing up um, all their mates. Yeah, that yeah. hits the headlines over here. Um, lots of stuff about um, poor old Sleepy Joe. Anything, <laughs> any time he he dozes off in front of a camera, that tends to make the news over here. Um, or if he does something stupid. Um, there's not an awful lot about um, old Camila Harris. Okay. She keeps a very low profile at the moment. As she um, does here too. So, Yeah, I mean, she's not as uh, white as white. Although she's black. <laughs> <laughs> Come on now, colour's not a thing anymore. No, no, I didn't mean colour. I mean, she's, she's, she's not as pure as driven snow, should we say. <laughs> I'm reading. I'm laying, I'm picking up what you're laying down there, Tim. So <laughs> I appreciate it. Hey, well, we're coming upon an hour. You know, I know we just kind of had a casual yeah. conversation here, but it was enjoyable talking with you. You know, I, I, I want to give you the opportunity to not only uh, plug anything that we haven't discussed and where people can find you, and um, you know, give us uh, sell your show a little bit there, Tim. Oh, you want me to sell my show? Right. Okay. Um, it's a Tim Hill podcast. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. I'm up to, um, I've just recorded episode 124 of other people. And there was over somewhere around about 200 episodes with my my life and uh, my rants and stuff like that. If you, <laughs> <laughs> if you ever want a bit of a giggle, it's uh, <laughs> have a look at uh, the podcast. They're on all the popular platforms. I'm also on YouTube, um, and YouTube, I've put an awful lot of 
content on there, particularly this year with the podcast. Um, I forget which episode I started out. It's about number 40, something like that, going forward, um, are all on YouTube. I have a Thursday, Thursday live stream okay. that goes out every Thursday from uh, 7 o'clock until 9 o'clock uh, British summertime. So if you're, you're around about, uh, I think it's about, you're about five or six hours difference in, in America. But if you, you're around that sort of time, um, tune in. It's uh, We have a, a, a laugh occasionally. We have some specials. Um, I've, I've done med health specials, forces mental health special. I've done crime special. I've done um, whatever, a sailing special. Um, and then we generally have an open forums where we have a chat about all manner of stuff. Right. And I have special guests come on and uh, people pop stuff in the chat box and ask us questions, put put the, the panel on the <laughs> on task. All right. So well, the, 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 the standard answer is, well, if I don't know, what I'll do is I'll go away and I'll find out and uh, I'll get back to you. Somebody will know, right? There you go. Somebody will know, yeah. Maybe that will just make up an answer. <laughs> well, he is Tim Heal. He is a podcast host. He has led an extraordinary life, uh, ranging from many things he's done in, a, in the military and uh, was an athlete and a podcaster and broadcaster and all around interesting guy. Tim, I want to thank you for appearing on this podcast. You know, obviously, uh, uh, I wish you the best of luck with your show and, and continuing to find interesting and ordinary people. You've lived a great life so far, and I, and I wish you uh, many more to come. Thank you so much, Michael. I've enjoyed it.